Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Tess Taylor, who Ilya Kaminsky recently hailed as the poet for our moment, resides in El Cerrito, California. Her poems have received wide national and international acclaim. Taylor's chapbook, The Misremembered World, was selected by Evan Boland for the Poetry Society of America's inaugural chapbook competition. The San Francisco Chronicle called her first book, The Forage House, an exploration of hidden family histories through archive and shard, stunning, and it was a finalist for the Believer Poetry Award. Tess, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Hi, James. Excited for you to be here. I loved reading your book twice. I read every book for these interviews twice, and I've loved reading all of them twice. So this is no exception. And and that's partially because the places and themes of Rift Zone will be immediately recognizable to anyone who has lived in the Bay Area. A collage of images and historical snapshots beyond the tourist traps that could only be written by someone who grew up here. One example from Valley Girl and Paramount, 1988. I'm 12, for the first time ever watching Earth Girls Are Easy with Rochelle B. at the Paramount in San Francisco, in whose deco dark we flicker into the enormous San Fernando Valley, a maze of split levels, freeways, turquoise pools. So how did you approach incorporating these memories of place with the poetry while still retraining the poetry? Because I think you do that very effectively. Um, you mean writing about place? Yeah, writing as... about place, writing about place you know so well without it just becoming a historical record, but doing it in such a way that I think where the poetry is retained. It's not just a recollections of place. It goes beyond that. It's so interesting because I do think, uh, for me, a poem begins with its music. Like, I can have an idea about what a poem should be about or what it would be convenient for a poem to be about, but a poem really never gets started for me until I have this little impulse in the mind and my mind is kind of receptive to some music and language. And maybe that's just a, the cadence of storytelling, or maybe it's a little bit of rhyme, but there's this extra filter that's on, and suddenly I think, okay, we're off and running now. And so I do, um, I grew up actually singing in the San Francisco Girls Chorus, since we're talking about Bay Area um, childhoods. And a lot of my early life, I thought I was going to be a musician, possibly an opera singer. Mm -hmm. um, and so this sense that um, the world is musical or that language is musical um, or that meaning is carried in music um, is, is like very deep in what draws me into poetry at all. So I wonder if that filter kind of helps helps things that are, might otherwise just seem merely documentary feel a little bit more lyric. Yeah, I think that uh, it would. I would be surprised to meet a poet who is either 
not a passionate about music or has actually performed in some way. I played the oboe for eight years. My parents are musicians. I just think there's a rhythm and a musicality, a musical ear that you get from either appreciating music very deeply or actually having studied music. And I could see that um, in your poetry. Yeah, I also think it's an orientation to the world. There was this cool piece in The New Yorker about people who design sound for movies mm -hmm. out of like very analog parts. And there is a term for them called audile. Like they, their ears are sort of always hypersensitive to sound. And I think we just all have different ways of, of processing, you know, the vast information of the world. And that, that sense of sort of like sonic, the importance of the sonic world. Um, we live in a world that's really visual right now, right? We're always looking at screens and cameras and phones and Instagram and, you know, but this feeling that there's a kind of a, a beauty to sonic experience is really partly, you know, part of the thing that makes you want to be a poet. I love that. Yeah. So the themes of displacement of peoples and fracturing of geology are so exquisitely woven throughout Rift Zone that your book reads like a book, not really a collection. Was Rift Zone conceived as a whole, or did you achieve this consistency through careful selection, editing, and ordering of the poems? Um, I do really value that sense of um, bookishness, of assemblage. You know, I I came of age in the, um, the maybe the last waning days of the LP and the vinyl and the record store, <laughs> and um, that feeling that like an album can pull you through. Um, I think Bob Haas, uh, who's that UC Berkeley professor emeritus who many of us admire so much, said that a book could just read like a very long poem. So I always do have that in mind, but um, that's not something that I achieve very willfully from the outset. Uh, this book was really just fits and starts. Um, since you've read it, you know that one of the things that's happening is I'm becoming a parent. Mm -hmm. um, and so my writing time was really differently broken up than it had ever been before. Um, I had just moved back to the Bay Area after um, 15 years away, which was a really big deal because it felt very momentous. It was like my life, um, my adulthood had arrived and also the Bay Area had changed. And so there were some poems that were literally... Uh, thinking about what had been on a street corner that I hadn't seen in 15 years and, and sort of this upthrust and ache of, um, of memory. And a lot of times when I'm writing, um, I do feel that it's probable that things will eventually come together, but there's a lot of um, patient blundering or just enabling or not panicking that I don't have it all sorted out yet. Um, I really rest in process for a really long time. And I would have told you, yeah, I'm writing a book about California and childhood and growing up and earthquakes and upthrust and, uh, you know, the violence of America. But I don't think I could have said that exactly I wouldn't I didn't know yet exactly how all those things were going to hang together and so um and then I reorder poems I mean I really do when I sit down with with books I'll start to sequence and 
um, that sense of letting things in and dropping them out can take um, years, really. Mm -hmm. There can be things that are just shuffling around for years before they feel like they have that um, that long poem feeling that I was mentioning. Yeah. No, it's, that's, that's exactly the experience I had, is it, it definitely came across, like you said, as bookish, even though it's so interesting to hear that that was not... This was, as in the case of most poetry books, was not written in one long go. It was written over years. So uh, leaning into another thing you mentioned, these images of earthquakes, geological images. I've asked this of other poets in the series. Um, how do you approach research and how did that research influence your poetry? It's so interesting. This is actually a not that much researched book in comparison to some that I've written. I really love that sort of fertile space between documentary and um, lyric that we've been kind of talking about. Like some some of my poems um, really do uh, arise because I go to a place and I actually go to the historical society and I learn its history and I learn all the names of the trees and somehow all of that sense of what's going on in the historical past or the ecological past or the ecological present weave their way into um, the things that I'm seeing around. So, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of research that's just not really being comfortable looking at a plant and not knowing its name because I feel imprecise as a writer, you know, plants and birds, um, soil types. My dad's a geology buff. I love like the knowing the name of a soil that that's just something that is maybe like nerdiness, you know, that's, that's, and then there's a kind of a, a layering that has to do with finding it richer to be in a place when I know something about its history and feeling like that's the moment where I um, begin to grapple with the mystery of how we come to be in the present. And um, both my parents are actually historians. So I think I come by this, um, you know, from, from like dinner table conversation of my whole life. But um, I was recently in rural Ohio and feeling like it's kind of painted as this red state and feeling like we're in this time when, I don't know, there's a feeling of virulence and um, I learned about this small town that I was in that it had a number of houses that had been on the Underground Railroad mm. and that it also had an uh, orchard that Johnny Appleseed had planted. And suddenly I got so much more interested in both the past and the present and the feeling of Ohio as this crossroads for settlement going east-west and also um, migration north-south and the whole place suddenly became fascinating to me and it's and that was the moment where I thought okay now I might want to write a poem about Ohio so I think I think it's research is really enabling for me in that way it's like that when I kind of can scratch the surface the right way suddenly these avenues for exploration open up in the um even in the surface of the ordinary so these are poems about my home, and in some ways you wouldn't think you need to research your home, but um, but under it, there is, you know, a Spanish land grant, mm -hmm. there is the fact of um, 
the era when this was Mexico. There's the land grab from Mexico by Anglo settlers. And there is also Japanese internment that happened in this town. And it's really possible to be here and feel like this town is just kind of boring and in the present. But once you start to think about it, there's all of these layers and they're all really fascinating. And they're all kind of chapters of American violence. And so suddenly even this place that is almost so familiar, I can't see it, could open up for me also. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a long answer to say um, there's different kinds of research. It's always with me. Um, and it's a way it's a way into the poems. Yeah, it's a way into my fascination. I know that when I do research, I am just praying that the terms and words and phrases specific to whatever I'm researching are poetic in nature. And uh, and then I'm very excited when I'm researching something and also poetic words pop out of it. Uh, so I loved your breakdown of the poetic research process. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was cool about this was sometimes those words actually give you something, though, that you wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, they can definitely be dead. And um, I mean, we've all written those poems where we try to use research and they come out just sort of. Um, the word my teacher, Louise Glick, used years ago was inert. Yeah. And boy, I, in my MFA program, I was handing in these poems to her and she would go, inert, inert, inert. We just, it wasn't alive to her yet. But um, one of the things that I uh, find is that sometimes you do find things. So for instance, this book um, is called Rift Zone, as you've pointed out, and that's a very specific geologic term. And it really has to do with the zone of land that opens up when continental plates are pulling apart and there is a tear, a kind of geologic tear in the surface of the earth. So um, to live inside the tear is to be inside the rift zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, much of the Bay Area is within a rift zone. Much of California is within a rift zone. But of course, that term echoes outward. It isn't just just geological. I mean, you could argue that America right now is in a rift zone and that um, that that term really, if you dig into it, it actually sort of helps you understand something about about rifting at all, about tearing apart, you know, um, so sometimes these scientific words or historic words that we come across can be really juicy. And that's fun too. And I think Rift Zone is a great example of that. It's just a perfect little poetic phrase that has multiple meanings and sounds good. And um, yeah, it's a great example. So Raw Notes for a Poem Not Yet Written is a wonderful example of how poetry provides opportunity for visualization and white space to enhance the experience. What is your approach to experimenting with placement and layout, with strike through and italics? When in your when in your writing process do you tend to focus on visualizing a poem? Um, this is so interesting that you're asking about this poem. Um, raw notes for a poem not written, and um, of course, a podcast is only um, audible. But if you are to look at it, it's very stretched out across mm -hmm. the page. Um, this poem really did come into being much as raw notes. Um, there really was a building in town 
that um, was a house from which people had left for to for to be interned in camps during Japanese internment. It was on San Pablo Avenue. Behind it was an enormous flower farm, um, and next to it was a f- what became a furniture store. Um, and the white neighbor offered to overlook the house, and the house. Um, stayed in the family or was was able to be reclaimed after internment and then had kind of been abandoned and left on the avenue with this big lot behind it and um was becoming now a senior center and was going to be torn down um but had this history attached to it so Mm. in the months before it was going to be torn down I got wind of it and I got um permission to go and look at it from people in city hall who knew that I was interested and knew why I was interested. And, um, it was a very rushed little visit around this kind of, um, basically what was about to become a construction site and, um, and was going to have like a little plaque on the seniors, the coming senior center would have a little plaque to commemorate this era of El Cerrito's history. Um, but here was this building that had lived through it and it had um, a kind of hauntedness around it. And so I jotted this down very fast. I thought I would come back to it and make a poem. When I came back, I actually liked the notes themselves. Um, the notes are very staccato and um, they also sort of show my grappling because there's this sense of how do we tell the story, which words are correct. Sometimes the words are struck through. So there's a line that says they never came back, but the word never is crossed out and left on the page so that you're watching the page have this kind of, um, I guess, argument with the self, quarrel with the self on the page. Um, And as I was putting the book together, I was realizing that these little fractured snippets felt like language under pressure, like Mm -hmm. land under pressure, like rifts, like torn things. Um, And that these snippets could be uh, dramatic and that I didn't necessarily want to make them more whole. So there's other moments in the book that feel maybe more lyrically whole. And then this is an example of something that feels a little bit like something torn out of a notebook or a little bit um, impromptu in that way. And um, so uh, I thought, okay, that's one of the, that's one of the modes of this book, these kind of little, um, little shards, little um, notebook entries. And it stayed just that way. Love. I'm so happy I asked about that, that poem and I love the backstory. On social justice issues, economic equity, gun violence, systemic racism, colonization, all these social justice issues are beautifully woven into many of the poems. This is tricky to do. Um, How do you approach incorporating themes connected with current events while retaining the poetry? How do you achieve what is clearly a strong point of view without preaching? And I ask that because at open mics I've attended... Occasionally get folks that are very passionate about an issue or going through some serious trauma and they're just letting that out. And it's important to let that out. And it's probably beneficial for them. It's not particularly compelling as poetry that'll last for a long time. It's so in the moment. 
Um, so you have things that are all these current events, and yet it is it has a timelessness too. I think that's really tricky to achieve. How, do you think about that, or do you just, do you just sort of achieve it? <laughs> I really think that the point of poems ultimately is not certainty. And that's Mm -hmm. uncomfortable for some people or for all of us in an era when we're, we're often outraged. And in our outrage, we feel really certain that we know that we're right and other people are wrong. And we know exactly why we're right and why other people are wrong. And we have this kind of certainty. Um, But I really actually think that when we're in the place where we're writing poems, poems are really effective for helping us to grapple with our uncertainty. And another way of putting this is a famous quote by um, the poet W.B. Yeats, which says that um, out of quarrels with others, we make politics. And out of quarrels with the self, we make poetry. Now, that doesn't mean that the quarrels that we have with ourselves can't be political because we can be have political quarrels with ourselves, you know? I mean, it, political quarrel is whether or not I should drive a car today, you know? Is that, like, what what parts of my life are morally reprehensible? I mean, we can have political quarrels with ourselves. I think that most of us do have political quarrels with ourselves. And if we're not having them, probably we should be because I think that's kind of what it is to be a moral human, right? To have... Uh, doubt and to have uh, conflict with the self. But I think for me that that conflict with the self is really my way of sidestepping my sense that I need to argue exactly in this moment Mm -hmm. with other people. And, you know, certainly um, I grew up in Berkeley where they say, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And outrage is... um, not, um, you know, it's not like I'm against outrage. Like there's a lot to be outraged about. It's just that for me, um, when I'm doing the work of the poem, the work of the poem is to stand in a place where one can grapple, one can change one's mind, one can be surprised and um, be changed. Uh the sonnet has this um, special thing called the volta, right? So the poem goes in one direction and then suddenly it turns and that's the signature mark as well as the 14 lines and the syllables of the sonnet to, to be able to have this turn. And that question of the turn is a little bit about um, transformation. You know, I thought this, but suddenly I realized that. And I really, th- I really, I really do think that poems are partly, um, yes, to let us process grief or anger or sorrow or trauma, but they're also places where we have, um, are vulnerable to some kind of transformation. And so, so yeah, that's, I think maybe that's my, my idea about how to, how to sidestep that feeling of, being bombastic or, you know, pontificating. Or overly certain. And have overly certain, certain, right. Yes. I mean, just right, overly certain. And again, like, it's not about not being political or not being outraged mm-hmm. because, um, <laughs> because anyone who knows me well knows that, like, that I, you know, the, <laughs> the 
curious. No, your your point of view is clear, and yet it, it, it's. I think it's easier to hear points. I think this is important for poets that are uh, listening and thinking about uh, things they're passionate about. Is that it can be easier to hear something when it's not shouted at you where you connect the dots a little bit and fill in a little bit, you you may actually hear it more deeply. And I think that's that, I, that's what I took away from your clearly strong points of view, but they're not, I didn't feel shouted at. It's very effective. Mm, thanks. So Rift Zone has quiet moments that reflect on the Bay Area's natural environment, the resilience of redwood trees. In Obad with Redwood, you write, Look, the gash in its bark thickens to heal on our neighbor's fence. Song with Wild Plum and Thorn is another example. In crafting the order of this collection, how did you think about the placement of quieter moments? And you already mentioned that, you know, you spent a lot of time, years even, thinking about the structure and ordering of I thought the quiet moments were placed very effectively, and, and was that intentional? Um, again, I think that for me is just that feeling of texture, of moving and modulating through a collection and really coming back to wonder, moments of wonder when they happen, um, living inside that wonder. But I, yeah, I think that I would just say that that's an instinct, right? This is a moment that a sense of modulation in the texture of the book as a whole. So the three middle sections of Rift Zone all have section headings with found text drawn from Roadside Geology of Northern California. In mm -hmm. Loma Prieta, 1989, you write, Later I'd read Roadside Geology of Northern California, funny yellowing book my father treasured. I'd learn Rift Zone, Subduction, Slab Pull. How much did this book influence your early stages of writing or was it after later on that you realized this reference became a wonderful way to pull the themes of the book together that book had pride of place on my parents bookshelf I think it's probably still there <laughs> and we moved to California when I was about seven and uh, my father got really interested in planning you know, Saturday expeditions for us to learn this new state. And he got really, really interested in giving us geology lessons and reading to us about all of the things that made California, California. And he um, explained the dynamics of fog and he would explain the dynamics of sedimentary rock and fault lines. And I mean, I honestly felt like he was just talking about it all the time on every road trip for years. And so it was sort of in the back of my mind. And I didn't really think much about it until I went back and lived on the East Coast um, and realized that I really was on a different continent. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we call it one continent, but it's it's really three continental plates. That's the other thing. It's not just two. There's the whole plate that goes all the way up to the Rockies. And then there's the plate that goes from the Rockies to the San Francisco Bay. And then there's this third plate that goes out into Point Reyes in Olima that's like another undersea plate that's just pushed up just for a minute at the edge of California. And somehow this notion that we're living on the third continent, you know, the far west is this like beyond the beyond, <laughs> sort of felt like it, you know, helped me 
articulate what it was like to be from Berkeley going east. And being from a kid from Berkeley going east in the 90s was was weird. I was I was a little culturally different than other people. I was a child of hippies and um, a little bit wayward and didn't really ever buy anything from the J. Crew catalog, got all my clothes from free boxes and, you know, had a certain kind of radical politics that I'd grown up with that I was sort of surprised to find out that the rest of the world didn't have. And so, I mean, um, all of this is a long way back to geology, but Finally, I'm sitting down to write this, come back to California all these years later, and I sit down to read this, to write this book. And I notice this book on my dad's shelf, and it's still there. And I just pick it up and start to read it. And it's so full of, again, that juicy scientific language. Mm-hmm. It's for lay people. It's not, it, but but when you write science for lay people, you end up um going into metaphor, you can't help it. And so as a result, science for lay people is full of kind of really interesting poetic language. And um, I loved this language. And so I ended up borrowing it. And I was just looking for my favorite part. Um, Each region has its own geologic style that permits some rocks to form and prohibits others. We try to point out the possibilities within each region to give a general idea of what to expect. Hopefully, you will be able to tell for yourself what kind of rock you have. <laughs> that wonderful. was pretty new yeah. to me. But the other one that's there was this one at the beginning, the opening poem, Preface Pocket Geology, begins the book, and it says, Atop the Earth's mantle, rock moving, continents are milk skin floating on cocoa. A restless interior sweeps them along. That sentence, continents are milk skin floating on cocoa. I mean, what a weird sentence. Continents yes. milk skin floating on cocoa. That is lifted from roadside geology. Amazing. Now. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, that scientists, in order to make things intelligible to a layperson, have to use poetic devices to do so. Yes, that's that's a wonderful observation. Well, I mean, it, and it's it's, you know, I think I'm really interested in sites where scientists and poets meet up and sort of share things because I do feel that poets can really help with the interpretation process, Mm -hmm. you know, and that also poets and scientists are kind of way out. I mean, way out in this universe. And sometimes they're like, Oh, you know, um, they, they have a lot of fun talking about it, but anyway, continents are milk skin floating on cocoa is maybe one of my favorite found sentences in a book ever. Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. So I got one more question before I hand the mic over to you. So you've had the opportunity to share your poetry and thoughts on poetry beyond academic audiences. Amanda Gorman has beautifully elevated the awareness of poetry to a national audience. What role do you see poetry playing during a time of such division and conflict, which we've referenced earlier, both as a voice for those that need to be heard and for comfort? Well, there's another, there's a bit of roadside geology of Northern California, and we talked about rift zone, right? But there's another quote at the beginning of the book, which is from the Nobel Prize winning poet Seamus Heaney's Government of the Tongue. Um, And he's writing into great civic division and violence in Ireland. And he says, in the rift between what is going to happen and what we would wish to happen, 
poetry holds attention for a space. Hmm. And the rift, the tear. Um, And I think his hope and my hope is that in that little space where you hear a poem, it's not as if he says it won't stop a tank. It's not as if it reroutes the world or stops the war in Ukraine today. But what it does do in a time when we are numb and exhausted um, is that it gives air to the thinking, feeling, breathing being inside us. It calls up our awareness of our lives. um, And it gives us a chance to feel and it excavates our feelings and our complexity to ourselves. And it can do that really quickly. You know, you just need a couple minutes to read a poem, mm-hmm. and a couple minutes to register that some breathing being has written this poem and that you also are a breathing being and that um, you also are being allowed and invited to notice your breath and your life. And I need this practice very much. I need to go to poems to find that um, awareness. And the fact that they give me that awareness makes me feel that I would like to help pass that along to other people. I would love it. You know, people sometimes talk about stretching or like um, taking a break, a water break or taking a... um, a break to do yoga. It would be really interesting if everybody just took, you know, a break once or twice a day to read a poem. Because mm-hmm. you can fit it in. You can tuck it in so easily. You could read one before dinner with your family. You could read one first thing in the morning. What would that be in opposition to, say, doom scrolling or writing a really, really angry tweet or, you know, um, I don't know, whatever else it is that we do when we're kind of filling this interstitial space, what if we gave a little bit of time to poetry every day? Um, what would it, what would, what could it do for us? That I mean, I, I think it could do a lot. I think it could do a lot. I, I love that idea. Well, now I'm going to uh, turn the mic over to you to read a few selections from Rift Zone. Wonderful. Well, thanks for inviting me to read these three poems from Rift Zone. Um, I I want to read them in sort of not chronological order of the time they were written, but in chronological order of the time they reference, I think maybe would be the best way to put it. So um, you started out by asking me to read a pretty a pretty long ranty poem, which is kind of fun, called Berkeley in the 90s which honestly is one of my favorite poems to read to college students. They just, they just seem to love it. And also I love reading it to them. So I'm just going to read it to this podcast as if I'm reading it to college students and that we're all just kind of um, in a mosh pit together. So here we go. Berkeley in the 90s. Too late for hippie heyday and too young to be yuppies. We wandered creek sides and used bookstores. 
There were still so many movie theaters. Our parents marched against the many wars and fed us carob chips. We foraged in free boxes for old wrap skirts, but had absorbed consumerist desire and also longed for new J. Crew. There was no internet yet, and so we listened to Steve Miller Band on repeat and cut geometry to skinny dip in the Essex Street hot tub. We knew the code just as we knew to disapprove of America. We walked out of high school after Rodney King. We helped our mothers shop for bulk oats at the co-op. We felt we could and couldn't solve it. We could say systemic racism, but couldn't name yet how our lives were implicated. We drove our grandmother's Volvos up Marin and watched the spangled world from Grizzly Peak. We climbed Mount Diablo in spring rain. We learned the meaning of the word hegemony, but thought the word itself was hegemonic. We got high to the patter of the wind chimes. When we missed our friends, we wandered to the farmer's market for bruised peaches. Bruised peaches were our kind of revolution. There was not internet yet, and so we made elaborate cutout flyers to invite our friends to picnics up at Cordonisi's. Bodies in space were revolution. Some of us were feminist and queer. Some of us wore wool sailor pants and passed out at bad university parties. Oh my God, that was embarrassing. Some of us cut class to spend days reading in the dank public library. Alone in our aloneness, we fumbled with one another's bodies in dim alleyways near city lights. Our revolution under cherry blossoms reading Virgil. One of us made red mushroomy kombucha. One of us taught the others to eat burdock. The burdock eating didn't really take. Some days we paid the toll for people behind us on the Richmond San Rafael Bridge. At Steep Ravine howled Whitman at the sea. Most days we were a crumbling outpost. Nearby, the street preacher Paul of the Pillar spoke in helter-skelter baritones from liberated air on the Cal campus. We too believed in liberated air and some nights bought Paul sausages at Top Dog. Under the Campanile, we discussed how Ginsburg was a sellout now because he posed for Gap ads in wide-legged chinos. Chinos were not the revolution. Trigonometry was not the revolution. We memorized short poems by D.H. Lawrence. We were quick fish who read Gary Snyder in someone's dad's Mendocino cabin. Some of us climbed ferny gullies on winter solstice and got topless, decorated each other in white reindeer lichen, recited the Tao Te Ching, had sex on a cliff. Reindeer lichen was the revolution. Our new breasts in rain were revolution. We craved transcendental revelation, the radical and burning future. We lobbied for condoms in the high school bathrooms, even though the bathrooms needed toilet paper. The next one is called Breach and Wake. And so we're fast forwarding a little to, um, to the birth of my daughter which is about 20 years after that other poem was written. Breach and Wake. Ooh, I want to say one thing about this poem, which is that there are these cool, weird little um, sea creatures that float. They're sort of, they're, they're driven by winds and they've kind of fly, float all over the oceans and they're called Valella. I had to look um, that up. So absolutely, yes. Yeah, my marine biologist friend, they're actually called Valella Valella. That was like a crazy biological name, but um, they drift, they, they have little sails and then they have tiny, and they drift all over the ocean. So anyway, breach and wake. 
daughter, Sprague, fresh Odysseus, amniotic, blue Valella, Kelpie grasper baffled by light. Your cry is the clatter of gulls. Our limbs are your octopus. We're foggy, adrift. Days crash and sail over, double-hearted, many-chambered. We grow creaturely. Then you, half-blind, breach and wake, laborious porpoise, nose your blowhole into human flesh. The last poem I want to read for this podcast, thank you, James, for having me, is um, the last poem in the book. So it's an envoy, a send-off. And um, it's for San Francisco. And it's about a true fact, which is that a lot of San Francisco is actually built on former low-lying waterland that was filled in quickly to make Market Street. And um, one of the ways you could do that was abandon a ship and then come back and do a ship claim and then fill in the ship with like sediment and then claim it as land. And this was this crazy um, post-1849 post way of doing a kind of land grab, but by filling in a piece of the bay. So as a result, under Market Street, there's all these abandoned gold rush ships that you can, if you build Twitter, you're literally going to find timbers of ships that were abandoned to make Market Street um, in the at the end of the 1840s. Um, and somehow the the fact that this is a gold rush place, that it's it just stuck with me. So that's here in this poem, um, which starts with a quote, which I'll read. Envoy, San Francisco. A number of the ships, wharves, and other infrastructure of San Francisco's gold rush waterfront lie buried beneath the streets and sidewalks. And that's from Gold Rush Port, the maritime archaeology of San Francisco's waterfront. City of shipwrecks, city of water, sand hills where mountain lions prowled above windjammers, City whose first Anglo historians proclaimed themselves to be the only modern progress and promised to sweep away forerunners who wanted to bind the world's many people and with their new port to do to China what the British had done with India, but sooner. City of gold rush and bust and boom, city of mudflat, of private wharves, buildings to ships, ships into buildings, forest to everything, city of old growth and redwood pilings, city of whores and Mackinac blankets, of Irish whiskey and fireproof paint, of schooners abandoned for gold fields, the Niantic, the Apollo, the General Harrison, City whose abandoned ships became floating opium dens next to floating prisons. City of otter pelts and shovel salesmen whose white settlers funded their own microgenocides. City of quickfires and tallow and opium, of myrrh eggs stolen off the Farallons. City of landfill and movable real estate where right now a woman in underwear howls in the street and a barefoot teenager scratches his sores and an addict begged the last of my rice just outside this room where I am writing city of fault lines, city of water, as much as of anywhere I am of you. Thank you. 
Well, just a couple of questions to bring it home. I am so happy I had you read Berkeley in the 90s. That was as fun to listen to as I expected it was going to be. So, and, I, and I can see how that would be. Part of the reason I chose it, it just it screamed out as a poem that you would totally enjoy reading. So I got that from it. Uh, so it's such a rich collage of images and memories that feels like it could go on forever and ends as though walking away from a story still being told, the M-dash ending. At least that's how I it struck me. How did you approach which images and memories to include and which to edit out? And how do you think about the endings of poems? Oh, um, that one I was really permissive with. I just threw in all these things that felt <laughs> kooky and of the time. And somehow I've always loved that really funny story that's really true. It's a true story that we were doing all this activism around sort of um, birth control and access to birth control that could be um, that students could have access to free condoms and they could get them in a bathroom. Um, uh, this was one of the things that we were tossing around as as a kind of I was part of an activist group um, and uh, a feminist activist group in, in high school. And then we we went to the um, the school board meeting and um, made this whole presentation and all these people are nodding and considering. And then somebody really did raise their hand because we had this sort of really pretty rundown school that we were in and sometimes pretty horrifyingly rundown. And somebody said, well, listen, if there could be condoms in the high school bathrooms, could there also be toilet paper? And um, then there was kind of silence. So... Uh, you know, not everybody's from something like that. That was kind of a weird place to be from. And I think, I think we all are from weird places. And, and, but that to me was sort of like an epitomized the weirdness of growing up where I did when I did. And, um, so that's kind of this, this poem was just the waywardness and the, the kind of special slice of life feeling of that, of that moment. I just, that was, that whole poem was just going to string it together and, um, and for some, it is really fun to read. Well, in contrast, Breach and Wake is so wonderfully compact. There isn't a single extraneous syllable. And I think people can misinterpret short po shorter poems as easier because there are so few words, when in reality, in shorter poems, each word is exposed. Changing a single phrase can have such significance. Clatter of gulls, baffled by light and laborious porpoise are so wonderfully evocative. How do you approach revising and editing in contrast to the Berkeley in the 90s, a much shorter poem like Breach and Wake? I think you just have to trust brevity. I think it's really important to think, what can you do in nine lines? What can you do in eight? Um, I really love short poems. I actually, um, Something that maybe aspiring poets can do and that one can always do is you can make little categories of poems and kind of build your own private anthologies. So, um, you know, keep a file of sonnets that you love, keep a file of um, long poems that you love and uh, keep a pile, file of poems that use rhyme in an interesting way, you know, place poems, etc. All these categories that you can make up for yourself even. But I have a category category called short poems, just because mm -hmm. I, I really, um, I think, I think when, when something mysterious gets going, and then leaves you there really fast, if you're really in it, um, that can be, be just as magical as anything else. So um, 
and how you do it, I don't know. Every poem has its own its own challenges, um, its own rightness. That's that's one of the things. Well, I loved your phrase, trust brevity. Don't fear yeah. it. Trust brevity. But your poems do not have to be long to be extraordinarily impactful. And there's many, many wonderful examples of that. So I, I, I said only two questions, but one more. What are you up to now? What's what's next for you? Well, the during the pandemic, I've been writing these little, small, a lot of short poems, actually, that are um, tender offerings, sometimes to um, beans or tomatoes, a lot of t- poems to food, food items. And then I've got new tendrils out towards messier, bigger, um, bigger things. Uh, something we didn't talk about in this program is that there was a companion book alongside Rift Zone, which was following the path of Dorothea Lang through California and using her notebook entries from the 1930s and 40s and writing her letters back from the present. And that book also came out in 2020. Um, and right now it's kind of becoming a play. So I'm oh, working congratulations. on this. Yeah. So that'll be fun if you're in the Bay Area, anyone, and you know, keep an ear out because that should be a really interesting um, night of sort of poetry theater. Um, and yeah, lots of little, lots of, lots of pots bubbling. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voice today on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah. So great to meet you, James. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.